Well, I'd invite you to turn your attention to Matthew 13 this morning in our study on the parables, our study on kingdom parables. And I've appreciated this study. I had intended to take a lot more of the scripture on today than I am. I ended up truncating it back. We have the Lord's table, but also I think that there's a point that I want us to see from Matthew 13 that is encouraging, and that is how you enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it's so important to understand how you enter the kingdom of heaven, and I don't want to confuse that point or miss making that main point this morning by biting off more than we can chew. Um, Entering into the kingdom of heaven is everything. Uh, Knowing that you are his, knowing that you're part of the kingdom is so important. The kingdom of God is uh, kind of framed in Scripture in three ways. It's God's you know, kingdom rule as king of kings and lord of lords over angels and dominions and rulers, authorities over those who are in heaven, those who are in hell. He is the ruler. He's ruling the events. He's ruling the weather. He's ruling our lives. He's the one who holds every cell together on the micro level to keep you alive and sustain you with life and breath. He is also the one who is in charge of you know, the galaxies and all the terra firma around us. He's in charge of the government. He's in charge of the governments. He's in charge of the world. Uh, that's In one sense, he is that king. In another sense, he's king over his church. Christ is the head of the church. Um, the kingdom of God is um, being seen on earth as it is in heaven through his church. Every believer through all the ages who will ever be saved or has been saved or is saved is part of this kingdom. The kingdom of God um, cannot be thwarted or stopped. We are the church militant, the church triumphant. I mentioned that last week. We are those who are fighting the good fight of faith where the gates of hell or death will not prevail against the church. The church is the conquering bride of Christ uh, that is... um, you know, spreading and populating the message of the king all over this world. We are his ambassadors. We are part of his kingdom. We are the ones who, uh, who represent visibly as we gather. Um, the physical representation of the universal church is represented in every local church, every true local church. This is the kingdom of God, God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Then there is the kingdom of God that comes in your heart. Romans 14 says that the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, meaning not religious duties, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit um, makes you alive. It makes you a gospel citizen, makes you um, royal priests, royal priests, part of his kingdom. We are his uh, emissaries, his messengers. We're his servants. We're servants of the king. That really is the message of Matthew as a whole. We need a king, and the Jews were looking for Messiah, and the king had come. And the king is, in this portion of Scripture in Matthew 13, delivering his kingdom message in the way of parables. This is at the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles due north of Jerusalem. It's kind of the last mission post before he goes into Jerusalem to give his life as the Lamb of God. He's giving his message now in parables, and that's important for us to understand because people who are receiving his message will see these parables as story-like examples of truth that are profound but can be understood by a child. And then 
Parables are what are rejected by people who are going, why is he teaching in this way, this obscure way? What's his point? And people are hardening their hearts to the message at this point. So the crowds are being bifurcated, split in two. And the kingdom parables are split under three themes in terms of what they teach. Three couplets in this section. The first of the parables are the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares, making the nature of the kingdom very foreboding, very heavy. It's, uh, it's binary. There are the haves and the have-nots. There's the good soil where you are saved, and there, there are the three other soils, rocky, thorny, and hard soil that is um, repelling the gospel, confused, not understanding, or outright right, rejecting the gospel. The other parable that we've explained and thought through, the wheat and the tares, how there are, there are two sowers between God and Satan that are sowing seed in this world, and you have true believers, and then you have charlatans and fakes, or people who will not believe at all, and they're the tares. And then finally, with this sort of foreboding message, there comes a message of hope in the second couplet, what we learned from the uh, two parables from last, last week's lesson. You have uh, mustard seed and leaven. Mustard seed, which is the mustard seed, single, almost invisible seed that's sown in the field that creates this incredible tree-like bush that's massive and big enough for birds to nest in. And it's a picture of the kingdom. The tiniest little portion of the gospel going out, the tiniest like sort of um, heart transformation can massively increase the kingdom in ways that are expansive. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, ultimately all of the world will be touched by the gospel and believers throughout all the ages come forth in the end of this kingdom work where here we are in Anchorage, Alaska, Anchorage Grace Church, a small little, you know, setting here compared to the city and yet we're broadcasting the gospel out and people are coming to faith in Christ and it's leaven-like, meaning it's like what's inserted in dough that makes it rise great big. It permeates. That's what we learned last time in Way of Hope. Now, we're not only learning about the nature of the kingdom and the um, power of the kingdom that fills us with hope, but finally, the appropriation of the kingdom, which is where the kingdom of God comes in your heart and in your life. This is the big question of the morning. How do you enter into the kingdom? How do you become a kingdom citizen? And these two parables that I'm going to mention now in verses 14... Uh, through 46, I'm sorry, 44, verse 44 through 46, these two parables tell you how to enter into the kingdom. Listen to them as I read them. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the appropriation of the kingdom. We've been learning um, secrets of the kingdom. We've been learning how in verse 11, the disciples, they were given the secrets of the kingdom, how the cause and cure of what's wrong with this world is sin, and that's the cause, and grace is the answer. Secondly, we've been learning about the problem of evil and how we're supposed to to kind of ride it through to the end and let God be judge in the end at the last day. Now we're learning this new secret of the kingdom. How do you get in? How do you get in? If you still want in, how do you get in? How do you sign up? 
Well, it's a little bit more complicated than just joining a church or signing a card or showing up. The entrance into the kingdom comes through one means, and that is heart transformation. Heart transformation. You need a heart transplant, a spiritual one. You must be born again. Without this heart transformation, you are not a kingdom citizen. But with the heart transformation, no one can take away your citizenship. You are defecting from the world and coming into a new citizenship, a new country, a new city, a new realm. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we want entrance into. How do we get there? Well, first of all, it is taught to us through a man who encounters hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. He found it and covered up. What? This is like a, something as simple um, for us as what a child could understand. A man's walking in a field, he's walking along, and sees something that he likes, something that is surprising him, something that was unexpected, unanticipated. He's just walking along, and here's treasure. Somehow the weather had uncovered some sort of storage box and it had precious jewels in it or, you know, untold, an untold fortune is there, like a treasure chest that he comes across and finds. It's so amazing that he must have it, so he quickly covers it up. He doesn't want anyone else to find it. And then he decides to sell everything in his joy and excitement, sell everything to have one thing. I will give you everything so that I can get one thing. That's the principle of the passage. Everything for a single thing. And before we explore this too deeply, let me just explain to you that a lot of scripture is explained in terms of a paradox, something that is on the surface a contradiction. It doesn't make sense to sell everything for one thing unless you see it by faith. When you see treasure as the Lord Jesus and as true salvation, as something that stokes joy in your heart, then you can begin to understand this paradox that to love Jesus as your treasure, something that someone you can't even see, but to love him that way is only accessed by faith. You truly believe in him. And so he stokes joy in your heart and you say, I've got so much joy in Jesus, I'm willing to give everything for the one thing. It's not that you physically can sell everything to get Jesus. It's not the point. It's releasing everything in your life because nothing else matters but him. That's what gets you into the kingdom. Look again at the text. It says, then in his joy, in his joy, that's heart transformation. Something happens. This guy sees that treasure and something explodes in his heart where he says, I am so happy. Everything that I have in my life does not make me happy. He makes me happy. And so in his joy, he has to take action. I'm going to sell everything I have so that I can have the one thing. This coalescence is provable in your heart when you see Jesus this way by faith. Not seeing Jesus as your everything means you've not seen Jesus yet. It's important to understand that. You might have heard of Jesus. You might have, you know, been taught of Jesus. You might have been learned many lessons that Jesus taught. You might have been to Bible school. But until he, you are captivated by him as the single most precious thing in your life that's worthy of giving everything away for so that you can have, you haven't really seen Jesus like you need to see Jesus to enter into the kingdom. That's the point. It's the woman at the well. 
You know all about my sin. You know about my five husbands that I have behind the scenes. Wait, you're, you're amazing. Are you not the Messiah? There was something opening up in her heart. John 4, you have to read it later. Um, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ where, where the stadium lights come on and you go, I see Jesus in a new and powerful way like I've never seen him before. It's Paul being thrown onto the ground on the way, on the road to Damascus to persecute the church with a list of names of people he's going after. And he sees the Lord in a way where he is blinded physically, but spiritually his eyes are open. It's Lydia as she hears Paul later preach the gospel and her heart is transformed and taken over. It's the Philippian jailer where the prison is shaken from the outside and he is shaken on the inside. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's the Ethiopian eunuch who is uh, where Philip is running alongside his chariot and he's reading Isaiah 53 and suddenly the scripture takes hold of his mind and he says, I see Jesus. It's where you in your dorm room one day take a Bible off your shelf that you've been neglecting for six months and you begin to read the scripture and it pops off the page at you. It's where you hear a conversation and something begins to make sense from scripture and truth that's different than the world. It's where you meet a Christian friend and you go, this is true fellowship for the first time in my life. That's the lights coming on where you find treasure in the field. That's what makes you do crazy things. Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man who gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's the cost evaluation of this in reverse. If you gain everything, but then you get nothing and you not only get nothing, you forfeit your soul. You're going to hell for that. Or what shall a, a man or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing. There's nothing you can get um, give that would quantify the value of your soul being saved, being being a member of the kingdom. Matthew nineteen sixteen through twenty two talks of the rich young ruler. You've heard of this before. A man came up to Jesus saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How can I get in by doing something?" That's what everybody says that gets desperate enough to say that. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is setting him up in his own um, sad state. Hey, I'm going to bait you here. Let's see how, how good you think you can make yourself to be to get in. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. And what's the young rich man doing? He's going, rich young ruler, he's going, check, 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 did that, got it, got it, good, good, good. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. That's what he's doing. The young man said, all these I have kept, verse 20. What what do I still lack? Hey, the onus is on you, Jesus. Tell me what else. I'm good. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. There's that word. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He did the cost evaluation. He said, that's not worth it. Following Jesus, it's not worth it. I can't sell everything off. I'm not going to change my life to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to do it. He was sad. He was sorrowful. The only way to be perfect is to say, I can't save myself. I can't build myself into heaven. I can't buy my way into heaven. I can't climb my way into heaven. I can't make myself love Jesus by the things that I do. Really, that's love of self. 
just doing yourself, you know, into this righteous mindset where you think you're good and Jesus is going, you're not good. The only way to have me is to let go of everything else so that you can have me. Let go of everything. Release it all. That's saving faith. That's a true heart transformation. That's saving grace in the heart where Jesus is everything. You give everything away to have the one thing, which is this treasure, which is the Lord. It's simple. There's a lot of common everyday um, scenarios that were given here. This was a common scenario. It's interesting to think about treasure in a field because we don't live in these kinds of contexts. At least maybe we do in Alaska somewhere, but usually we use a bank to keep treasure you know, to keep our savings, to put our money places. We have trusts like that. But back in ancient times, that was the banking system. Your banking system was to stick it in the ground and hide it. And you know where it is and other people don't know where it is so you can get it. We feel that way with online banking today. We hope people don't know where it is and we're hiding it from them. It's the same concept. So how would somebody come across treasure? And here is the ethical question. How could someone legitimately hide treasure And then go buy the field to get the treasure without the person being aware of the treasure. Well, there's a lot more legitimacy to what he's doing than um, at first blush. And I just want to answer the ethical question in this way. First of all, in war-torn environments, Palestine was very war-torn. And you have owners of land that would be killed, that, you know, killed in wartime. And they had... They had their treasure there, so somebody could come upon it. And then you have maybe people forced off of their land, and, and so that treasure is there, perhaps forgotten and left there for someone to find. We say, is that legitimate to apply the finders, keepers, losers, weepers rule? Well, um, rabbinic law and Roman law would say, yes, Roman law said if you came across treasure, maybe as a, a plowman or a servant of a master, uh, maybe it was a prior master's treasure that this new master doesn't know about, you can't in that situation lift the treasure out. It literally, the, the law of Rome said you can't lift it out, but you could buy the field to acquire the treasure. Secondly, uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, said that you, uh, you could find you know, stuff scattered in the field, um, scattered fruit uh, in possessions in the field gave rights to the finder. Um, Josephus found that in like the Talmud or something. But um, in, any, in any case, the ethics kind of clear out if you think of it this way. No owner of a field is going to sell the field with his banking system in there without first taking his money out if he knew it was there. So if it was legit that this person found it in the field, so you can, you can capitalize upon that by buying the field to get the treasure, then so be it. That was the law of the land. That's the way it worked. And so the owner would have done that. And if the, the finder was illegitimate or unlawful or unethical, he would have just taken it at night without buying the field. He wouldn't have sold everything off to get the field and get the treasure. So he was doing it by standard operating procedure. Jesus isn't worried about that at all. The point of this is the swelling price, the exciting value, the the one in a thousand chance to find something like this for his life. That's what it feels like to become a Christian. I found treasure. I'm excited about this. Something's new in my life and in my heart that I have not seen before. The world is the field and the world is, is, is out there. And I'm willing to let go of everything in the world to get this treasure, to get this treasure. Something hidden to a lot of people, something that I see, Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and buys a field at such a price and now possesses more than he ever had before. It's the kingdom that's delivered to your soul. When you give everything you have, Christ gives you everything back and more. Spurgeon said it this way about Christ, Christ leading by example, said, quote, So did Jesus himself at utmost cost buy the world, like the field, he bought the world to gain his church. Think about that. Which was the treasure which he desired. He bought you with a price. He gave everything, dying for the world to lay down his life for the sheep and buy you as his treasure. That's the gospel. That's what we do to enter into the kingdom. We're willing to give everything to Jesus, lay it all down so that we can come in. It's not buying our way into heaven. It's faith wakes us up to see that Jesus is treasure and he is who we truly want. He's he's truly worth um, this kind of sacrifice. It spawns this kind of joy. What this is, it's submission to the lordship of Christ. That's what it is. When Jesus is your treasure, you say, Lord, I will give you my life. I will give you my life. You're it. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That's entrance into the kingdom. It's not buying your way in. It's not a form of works. It's not a form of meriting or earning your way into heaven through self-righteousness. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a supernatural intervention of God. It's where you begin to say, I can't preserve myself. I can't preserve my soul. I can't save myself. I can't do good my way into heaven. I am literally relinquishing my rights, yielding myself to Christ. I am placing myself in full and complete reliance upon him to be saved. That's saving faith. That's saving faith. Saying to your, to your God that you cannot save yourself. Jesus, you must save me. Whether you're a Calvinist or, or you're an Arminianist, either one, you're saying, I can't save myself, save me. It's true. Any praying man or woman in the faith, whatever theological persuasion you claim for yourself, you're saying, God, save that person. You're not saying, God, let that person save themselves, Right? God saved that person. It's the drowning victim that's right next to the side of the, the pier, you know, and you're on the dock and you're looking and the person is, 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 you know, drowning in front of you. That person needs to be saved. You're not in that point going, save yourself. You're reaching out and saving that person. That's what Jesus does when he saves you. You're drowning in sin and he pulls you out of that state onto solid ground. When you pray for somebody to be saved, you're praying for that act to take place for them. No one seeks after God. God is the one who does the saving work. Let's look at the second parable. Second parable. Second parable is um, the pearl of great value, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Again, meaning uh, he's... Matthew in, is um, writing Jesus and writing of Jesus teaching, and he's building, Jesus is building one thought upon another. Uh, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price are, are kind of the same story with two different I- ideas attached to it. It's the same point, though. You're finding treasure. 
This time, instead of happening upon the treasure in the field, though, it's a merchant who's hunting for treasure. He's looking for something. And I hate to trivialize preaching ever with um, weird analogies, but I can't get away from this. It, think of that song from the, you know, the, the group U2, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? It's, that's the merchant. They're just looking and looking and journeying and trying to find something. They're, they're musing about who is God and, and what will give me satisfaction in my life. I know something of Jesus, but true conversion and saving faith is where you, you turn in all your pearls. You, you're a merchant for some pearls and you've collected them all and you give them all for one pearl. You cash it all out. For one, it's everything for a single thing. That's the pearl of great price. This merchant would have been in search for fine pearls. Pearls were um, very loved as uh, precious jewelry. There wasn't, um, you know, there weren't fake or synthetic pearls in that day whatsoever. Um, divers would go down at great risk of their lives or even their personal health going deep into the waters to bring these pearls up because they would go at great cost. They were concealable. You could stick them in your pockets and they represented great wealth on your personage when you had a pearl or pearls. They were costly. They were off the shores of the Red Sea or even off as far reaching as Great Britain where merchants would go and they would scour villages and areas looking for pearls so that they could buy, sell, and trade um, in pearls. Pearls were highly valued. Jesus said, don't give to the dogs what is holy. Don't cast your pearls before the pigs or the swine. Don't do something like that. The contrast of that unclean animal in the Jewish mind from something that's the prized possession to own, which is pearls. First Timothy 2.9 spoke of women not adorning themselves in pearls or costly attire because pearls at that time were hugely distracting because it would be like putting a, you know, sewing thousands of dollars in your hair for people to gawk at and watch and say, look how wealthy that person is. It's so distracting. Revelation 21, 21 talks about how gates in heaven are called a single pearl. A single pearl makes up a gate in heaven. Again, Hunting for pearls is a picture of faith, but hunting for pearls in no way is um, self-salvation or earning your salvation. Searching for fine pearls is a work of God in the heart that then um, translates into looking. Um, Romans 3 is clear. No one seeks after God, right? When you're left to yourself in a desperately wicked state, we're all intrinsically evil, we're born evil, we're born sinful, we're born blind, and we don't want the treasure until God starts working in our hearts and then we start to want the treasure. It's that simple. I just want to boil it down that way, even in terms of your own experience. The Bible says no one uh, comes to God unless they are drawn by him. John six forty four. No one's coming to Christ unless they are drawn to him. But as you are being drawn to God over even a period of time or circumstances or conversations or what you think are happenstance, but are, God is drawing you in conversations and books and sermons that you hear or different situations that are coalescing as that process is taking place, God is working on the inside in your heart and opening you up as you're watching circumstances bring this all together. And that's the calling and drawing of the Holy Spirit. And that's the picture here. This person is searching for fine pearls. They're looking for pearls. They're looking for something to help their life. 
And then who on finding one pearl of great value, they go, wow, I was looking for all this and I found that. That's what entrance into the kingdom of God looks like. They went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Everything, everything for one thing. It's again, verse 44 earlier with the treasure. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a heart transformation. It's joy in the Lord. Wow. I mean, when I had my first Christian best friendship, I was amazed at how different that was from every other friendship I had ever had in my whole life. I had joy for the first time. These Christian friends that I made during that time of my conversion, I still have them today. And they're some of the most special relationships ever. And now that I'm the ripe old age of 50, ugh, you know, up here. I mean, that was a long time ago, 17 to 50. Do the math. I mean, these are friends that have lasted that long. Friendships, Christian friendships. Even friendships I had with those guys before I became a Christian. They span all the way back to junior high school. So that's a long time. But then as a Christian, your heart's knit together in love. You have these Jonathan David-like relationships. You can talk about anything and everything that you want to these people. And they're amazing. That's the joy. That's the treasure of finding people in Christ, finding Jesus and finding Jesus together. That's treasure. That's the pearl of great price. It's powerful. It's what we have in the Lord Finding this pearl is, um, is by faith, though. I don't, want to mention, I don't want to fail to mention the fact that searching and finding this pearl is by faith. We're commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an instrumental act where we, how do you enter into the kingdom of God? Well, God is stirring your heart, and ultimately you yield. You say, okay, Lord, you get everything. I'm not saving myself. I mean, I've seen and heard of testimonies where people will literally lay themselves on the floor. They're done. Just as a symbolic admission, you can't save yourself. I release. That's why as faith is an act. It is a command, but it is such a unique, isolated act that it's something that you are doing and obeying, but it's not earning. You're not earning favor with God. You're saying, I am unfavorable with you. Uh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it is. Save me by your grace. Save me by what I cannot do for myself. That is saving faith. That is the instrumentality of saving faith. It's the the channel to God. It's being appropriated into the kingdom. And it's the same act and action and movement that takes place when you want to grow, when you've been digressing, when you've been failing spiritually. It's the reappropriation by saying, God, grow me by your grace. I'm devaluing the world. I'm devaluing the sin in my life, and I'm valuing Christ. It's joy. And what is joy? Well, the joy is the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's John saying, these things I've written to you all about Jesus and communion with Jesus. I've written them to you, First John 1, 1 through 4, that you may have joy and joy that's overflowing. James 1, 1 and 2 speaks of the Christian life. I've been thinking about this in my own life, circumstances that are hard and heavy in your life where pressure comes down. Um, It says, uh, James says in James 1, 1 and 2, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect work in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
All that means basically is that as the pressure comes on your life, the unanticipated trial is pressing down. God is building in you strength and endurance that you couldn't otherwise build. You need this weight on you so that something inside you will grow and you'll be stronger than you ever would have been otherwise. And you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, meaning all the deficits in your life are being revealed. All the blind spots are being uncovered. And God is growing you by his grace through that pressure. What is the command in that context of James 1, 1 and 2? Consider that joy. Is that just putting a smile on your face? No. It's a deep um, commitment to be content that God is working on you while he works in you. And through you. That's joyful. That's a, a, a joy that's grounded in sovereign grace. It's a joy that's grounded in realizing God is at work in your life. It's the willingness to say, I'm going 100% for God. I might have been going 50%, 50%, 50% in my home, 50%, 20% in my home, 10% in my marriage. But you got to go 100% in all the arenas, but especially for Christ, go 100%. That's what it means to sell everything. I'm giving you all of me, all that you are um, for all that he is. That's the gospel according to Jesus. Everything, everything. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he grew up in a Christian home. He was a boy who attended church, uh, did the proper things, wasn't notably immoral or rebellious, kind of satisfied in his life. And then on a New Year's uh, Day, um, when churches would pray in the new year, it was a snowy day um, somewhere in the um, UK, probably in um, England. And said he was 15 and he ducked into the storefront type church because he couldn't get to his own church. And in that church, there were 15 people. And um, the um, deacon, the head deacon had to go up and preach because the pastor couldn't get to his church because they were snowed out. Um, he said, when I could go no further... I turned into uh, down a court and came down a, a little came, came down to a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher who was there um, would have conducted the service, but he was weathered out, and um, a man stepped up. He said the man was really stupid. <laughs> so the text was, "Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth." And he just kept repeating it because he had nothing else to say. Just saying it over and over, but something about Spurgeon caught the man's eye and he said, young man, you look very miserable and miserable in life and miserable in death. You will be if you don't obey my text. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. He said, I looked, <laughs> I looked. And then and there the cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. That's saving grace. That's where you see this sacrifice of joy in your heart. 